We're turning to the Word of God this evening, to the book of Job, and to the chapter 9. While we have Job around about the middle of the Bible or coming towards it, uh, it is a book that is very old and dates right back into the times of Genesis, the first book, and Job would have been living during that time period. So Job chapter 9, and we're going to read a few verses at the end of the chapter, beginning at verse 30 and down to verse 35. Job 9 verse 30, and he's asking a question here, wondering, if I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, Yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any dares man betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. Let him take his rod away from me, let not his fear terrify me. Then would I speak and not fear him, but it is not so with me. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing unto the reading of his word, and we'll be bowing briefly before him now in prayer, asking for his help in the remainder of our meeting tonight. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank Thee for the testimony that we've heard, for the outline of the call of God in Christopher's life. And we thank Thee, Lord, for giving him that call initially and then coming and pursuing him and coming after him, renewing that call, making it even more plain and opening all the doors that at some points were closed. And we praise Thee, Lord, for him being in Thy will. And we often would think of the words of the old hymn, Are You Living?, where God answers prayer. And Father, we pray that as He calls upon Thy name for direction this day, the next day, right through His studies, even to the time, and the four years will pass very quickly, we all know that, when He's looking then for a place of service, will His grace, Thy grace, will have led him safe thus far. And we pray that that grace will lead him on through other open doors, that he can show himself to be an able minister of the new covenant. Come and answer our prayer tonight. We pray that God will speak to us now as we have turned to thy word and look for a message from God to be communicated to us. Speak plainly, Speak powerfully, speak persuasively, and speak in such a way that brings thy great pardon, thy forgiveness unto those that are in need of that forgiveness tonight. We pray in Jesus' name and for thy glory alone. Amen. Many years ago, people had the opinion and the notion about them that there was a special power to cleanse in snow water. That what they needed to do was take that piece of clothing that was soiled and then come along with the snow water, wash the clothing in the snow water, rinse it, and it'll be as clean as clean could possibly be. 
But they always, of course, had a bit of a backup plan, and so what they were doing was, if putting it through the snow water for the first time didn't remove the dirt and the stains, then they took a little lye or alkali, and they mixed that with oil, and as a result of that mixture and applying that, then they felt very confident that all of the impurities will most definitely be gone. Now, it's that idea that Job in our text tonight, in Job 9, the verse 30 and 31, is talking about. And so he says, if I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, or as the original Hebrew wording of the text would be, if I should cleanse my hands in alkali, yet thou shalt plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. So, It's not working in the way that Job might have expected it to work. And the end result is not the cleansing and the purging that he knew he needed at that time. So what he paints for us here in this text is a rather intriguing picture. What does it do? It underlines to your mind and to mine tonight how that every attempt by man to make himself pure before God One man will try works, and somebody else will try to be ultra-religious, and somebody else will try to pass the test of God and be accepted by Him by doing something else. All the emphasis on man's doing, man's way, man's thoughts, man's schemes, but all of those are such a total waste of time. No matter how energetic we are, no matter what extreme we go to, we could do what Martin Luther did. And way back in the 16th century, he's under the fear of God, and he reckons the only way and the only thing that he knew to do was to join a monastery, because after all, he felt these were the people closest to God in all of the land. How little did he know, but he joined the monastery in Erfurt. And he brought himself to within a hair of death on many occasions by denying food to his body, by laying himself out in frosty conditions, extreme weather, and all of this was an attempt to earn the favor of God. But he discovered it didn't work, and it never would work, and it never has worked for anyone that has ever gone down that kind of a line, unless we are cleansed by something better than earthly liquids and chemical preparations. We remain, as Job tells us here, we remain filthy in our sin and in the ditch of despair. If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shall thou plunge me in the ditch and mine own clothes shall abhor me. You see, the fact of the matter is, God's estimate is what counts. His verdict in me and you is what holds weight in time and in eternity. It doesn't matter how I feel about myself. It doesn't matter how much effort I employ in trying to make myself clean. I remain a mass by nature, a mass of uncleanness and corruption. And you know what? It'll take all the width and the depth of the grace of God to change me. And so we're thinking about some of the ways that man imagines that he will be right with God 
And you'll identify with this because you'll have heard it many, many times. He tries the snow water, we're calling it that, the snow water of elaborate excuses. Elaborate excuses. And you'll have heard some people and they'll bring up an excuse about their own sins. And they'll say, you know what? I'm a fair better than some, fair bit better than some other people. I can point you, I can bring you through my neighborhood, down my street. I can show you somebody there and they're far deeper into sin than I have ever been or ever planned to be. I see people everywhere and they're far worse than I am. And it seems to be that if they can point to somebody worse than they are, it makes them feel better better about themselves, and their reckoning, surely God thinks more of me. So up we go on our tiptoes, and look down on those who have fallen flat on their faces because of some sinful habit and some wicked crime. But at the end of the day, the question is, so what if I, if you, if somebody else is better than someone else out there? If I have a terrible disease, Well, I refuse medical treatment because my neighbor has a more fatal, faster-working strain of that same disease. The fact that his disease or her disease is worse than mine, more advanced than mine, does not help me in the slightest to get a cure for mine. If I, through my foolishness and love for sin, run off, breakneck speed into eternal destruction, does it break my fall to realize that some people are dropping off a higher cliff, going a deeper distance into outer darkness than I am? Am I better than they are? Absolutely not. Maybe if I had been under the same power of temptation as some of them are, maybe if I had less blockades and barriers and restraints in my life put there by the grace of God, instead of sitting here tonight, we'd be staggering through the street. We'd be the laughing stock of men and women, and the angels of God would be pitying us because we'd be dungeoned, body and soul and mind, in the blackness of despair. And maybe in the future, and I can't tell what will happen in my life or yours in the future, and if circumstances for us should change, and unless God steps in and prevents that, we could turn out worse than the worst of people that we're looking at today and saying, oh, they're terrible sinners. We could end up far worse than that. You will know as I do that many people who have gone down into the depths of sin in their lives never intended more than that, never even imagined it would be possible for them to drop as low as they have done. And a little chorus says, sin will take you further than you want to go, and we could turn out worse than what they are today. So instead of wasting our time in assessing others and putting scorecards on everybody's back and saying, well, you know, I'm better than they are, and I'm not as far down in sin as they are, let's ask ourselves the question, as though we were the only ones in existence, and we were standing honestly before God, were am I going to end up? Shall it be with God in heaven for eternity or down with the devils in hell? Where, where, eternity, where for me? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, 
Yet thou shalt plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me, because God is saying, your excuse is of no value. But then others excuse their sins by saying, you know, if I've gone into sin, it's been through my companions. My workmates, they're to blame on this one. My friends, it's they who have ruined me. They introduce me to the houses of sin. They push me to practice it. They encourage me. Just try it tonight. You'll never regret it. They ruined my soul. They are to blame. And so they're pointing the finger at their companions. And that's nothing new. Man has always tried to shift the blame to somebody else. Pass the buck. Didn't Adam do exactly that in the Garden of Eden way back at the beginning of time? We read in Genesis 3 and 12 his words, and he's saying to God, this is his explanation as to why he was dying in iniquity and running away from God, had fallen into sin. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the dream, and I did eat. And so he's blaming Eve. By extension, he's even blaming God, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me. She gave me. And isn't that what we do? Push it on to somebody else. I can't take the whole blame for the things that I have done because I never would have done them had I not been introduced to them by others. Now listen. If those sinful friends of yours had tried to steal your wallet or your purse, you would have stopped them. If they tried to come in and vandalize your car or your property, well, if you had a shotgun, you'd have opened the window and let fly at those. But when they tried to steal your immortal soul, you just stood back, weakly submitted to it. Why did you do that? Because the sin that they encouraged you to commit, you loved. Your heart longed for it. You were excited by it. If a man is ever destroyed, he is self-destroyed. And that has always been the case. And on the day of judgment, nobody will be able to stand and give traction to this excuse on that day. Lord, don't blame me. Blame the people behind me, the people in front of me, the people who encourage me to do it. Every one of us shall give account of himself to God. No matter how elaborate the excuses that we try to lean on, to try and distance ourselves from the sins of our heart and life, those excuses don't work. They're like this snow water that Job is talking about, and they don't wash away a single stain of our guilt. But then somebody else says, well, actually, these excuses, I'm not relying on those. I'm not pleading that kind of a ground. There's something else that I'm trusting in. Not elaborate excuses so much as righteous or religious even. Resolutions. Good resolutions. You know, at the beginning of a year, and we decide we're going to do things differently, and we flick over and change the leaf and have a different page and everything's going to be changed. And we're imagining 
that we're going to wipe out our debt here in the past with a future promise. I resolve to do something better in the future, and surely that'll satisfy God. Well, let me give another illustration of that. Suppose I owed you £1,000, and you're in tonight in the building, and you're going to collect. If you don't collect anything else, you'll be collecting the £1,000 from me. And I come to you and say, I'm coming around to your house tomorrow, and okay, a day's grace, that's fine. But I come tomorrow, and I say, I'll never run up another debt to you again. Would you all go soft and weak at the knees and throw your arms around me and say, well, if you promise never to run up another debt to me in the future, I'll wipe out that 1,000 pounds, you can keep it. Would you do that? I wouldn't expect you to. I wouldn't want you to. Do you think God is going to? Just dismiss all the past because you say I'm going to change in the future? We've been running up a long score of guilt and debt with God day by day by day. We're adding to it. Even if it was possible to stop sinning tonight and resolve, I'm not going to sin anymore. Even if that were possible, and it's not. And through the rest of our days on earth, we're not going to sin anymore. That alone would not cancel out the debt that we already have accrued. God distinctly declares in His Word that He will require that which is past, we will have to give an answer for that. Ecclesiastes 3 and the verse 15, past neglects, past wicked words, past impure thoughts, past refusals and rejections of His gospel and His Son and His mercy and His grace, past everything. In many years gone by, a manufacturer was out on the road and he had a bag of money, and he was squaring people up. He owed them for supplies, and he was paying all of that. And a man driven mad by hunger met him on the road and hit him with a post. The post had a nail in it. That nail entered a skull and instantly killed him. Thirty years later, the murderer was visiting the graveyard, and he'd often done this with guilt on his conscience. I killed that man. Nobody knows I did it. I've never been accountable for the crime. And the sexton was digging a grave that day, and while he stood beside him and chatted to the sexton, the sexton's spade turned up a skull with an eel still protruding out of the back of the skull, and petrified with horror, first of all, he stood in silence, but then cried out, guilty, guilty, God. All the unpardoned sins of our lives though we might think they're buried and they're out of sight. They've faded into a mere skeleton of memory. They'll turn up out of the cemetery of the past, and they will gaze at us out of their bony skulls, all of our unpardoned sins. What are we going to do then? Good resolutions? Though they might be as pungent and caustic as alkali, have no power to wash away a single past transgression. Something better than earthly chemistry is needed for this. If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shall I plunge me in the ditch and my own clothes shall abhor me elaborate excuses. Don't get rid of sin. 
righteous resolutions do not remove sin from our account out of our lives. That's why we have to end by considering a successful solution. And that's where our hymn comes in and our text comes in, dovetailing with the hymn, Whiter Than Snow, the successful solution. Job says here, sin takes us into a ditch that's long, deep, and horrible, and filthy, and we're plunged into it, and we wallow about there, and we sink down into it, and we're struggling. And you can imagine getting stuck in a marsh, and you're going further and further down, and the more you struggle, the deeper you're going down, and the more filthy your clothes are becoming, and they're being saturated here with the grime and with the filth. And then you're hating the circumstances you're in. And so it is, Job was saying, with my soul, it is hating the hateful covering of sin around me. And that covering is hating the soul in turn. The Bible tells us the story of her sin, and it spells it out in letters of fire. Present sin, and we might think it's nothing at all, but it tells us in Scripture it's a fearful thing, a most hateful, hideous thing. That's how God views it. Not only that, it's a universal thing because nobody is immune. The Bible tells me the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Everyone has gone back. Nobody is immune from this. He has altogether become filthy. He is abominable and filthy and drinks in iniquity like he does water. The Bible pictures sin as a total thing. Isaiah 1 and 5, the picture there is the whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. All is infected by it. And this sin, it's a deadly thing. In Ephesians 2 and 1, Paul paints a picture of men dead as they live, dead spiritually to God, going out to be dead eternally, tormented forever, dead as they live in the terrible place called hell. Sin is a deadly thing. The black hearse lumbers up to the cemetery gate. The procession goes through the gate. The coffin is lowered five or six feet below the level of the ground. But the body inside the casket is no more dead than every man, every woman, every young person spiritually until they've been regenerated, made alive by the grace of God. The Bible takes our pulse, our spiritual pulse, and it says you're dead. You are spiritually dead. You are dead. Paul phrases it here in trespasses and in sins. And the question is tonight, are we going to stay where sin has put us? We can't afford to. And tonight, let me delight to tell you, there's something purer than snow water. There's something more pungent than alkali. And this is what we've been singing about, reading about the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. The river of salvation, bright to crystalline and heaven-born and freely flowing. It rushes that river from Calvary's cross all the way through my audience with its vibrant tide and it's strong enough, powerful enough, fresh enough 
forceful enough to wash away your sins and mine completely and forever. I've mentioned the prophet Isaiah previously tonight. I quote him here again. Because he puts such encouraging words in Isaiah 1 and verse 18. God's invitation to you and I as sinners. Come, now let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet. They shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. This is better than snow water, better than alkali, the blood of Christ. It's the only cleansing agent endorsed by God in heaven that brings cleansing to the human soul. We sing, thorny was the crown that he wore, Jesus, and the cross his body o'ercame. Grievous were those sorrows that he bore, but he suffered thus not in vain. May I to that fountain be led, made to cleanse my sins here below. Wash me in the blood that he shed, and I shall be whiter than snow. If only you knew how full, how free, how tender the offer of Christ is to your heart. Tonight, you would all take him. And may this be the night when you do receive him. That is my prayer.